as I've said many times, DevOps is not a position or a role, it's a way of life, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I've talked to companies who are trying to modernize their their development organizations. Like, oh yeah, we're gonna build up a DevOps team and, and start this code over. I said, you're gonna spend a lot of money and fail. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're either in or you're not, right? It's a, it's, it is a philosophy. Are you into having uh, distributed uh, authority for decision-making process and implementations and on deliveries. Are you into having uh, uh, localized authority over um, implementation details against a higher-level target business goal? Are you into blameless postmortems? Are you into investing in automation? Are you into enforcing certain values as a requirement? Um, around testing, documentation, all the other things that go into having yes. a solid development lifecycle. Because you're not, if you're not willing to commit to that, there's no point in even trying. This is the DevSecOps Podcast. The DevSecOps Podcast is supported by OWASP. Organizers of Melbourne's OWASP AppSec Day 2019, Australia's biggest software security conference. And by All Day DevOps, the world's largest DevOps conference with over 30,000 attendees, live online, November 6th. Shortly after watching the documentary Code Rush, I met with Tara Hernandez, the hockey stick carrying lead of the Netscape project that was being documented. We sat down at the Jenkins World Conference in San Francisco to talk about the effect that project had on her career what she's been doing since with her position at Google, and what she hopes to be working on in the coming years. We started our conversation by exploring the relationship between the Netscape project in 1998 and the current state of DevOps. Would DevOps have made a difference? Before we begin today's broadcast, I want to remind you that All Day DevOps is coming up quickly. This is a 24-hour live online conference with 150 speakers from around the world. The goal of the conference is to reach DevOps practitioners and companies with a DevOps initiative who don't have the budget or time to attend external conferences. On November 6th, we're bringing 150 DevOps practitioners to your desktop. Registration is free. Find out more at alldaydevops.com. And now, on to the broadcast. A lot of people would recognize you from the Code Rush documentaries. And the real question isn't about Code Rush as much as if you look at what is happening now with DevOps methodologies and processes, would that have made a difference in your project? You know, that is a truly fascinating question. I think in some ways, a lot of what we did from a developer support perspective sort of predated that. There's a lot of, uh, you know, having automation helping validate uh, on, a, on an as-you-go basis when we created Tinderbox, and, uh, which, and I'll talk about in the keynote today, you know, a tool born of desperation. Um, how do we keep on top of this? How do we have a buildable mainline? Um, I think that was that was a, a definitely something that was recognized not just by Netscape but by a lot of companies who are starting to do that. Like, yeah, this makes sense. This is a best practice, you know, that that we should adhere to. But as far as you know, DevOps being basically the mechanism by which you implement Agile, 
like you know, agile mm -hmm. is from a planning perspective. DevOps is the is the implementation of you know, getting the bits out the door, in support of that. I don't know that it would have made a difference, honestly. Uh, Netscape was moving so fast already. You know, the Agile methodology says reduce the amount of time between business idea to implementation. And uh, we were pushing out bits. Well, in some ways we were going really slow because, oh, it's like, well, okay, we'll have this release. But we, were, you know, we moved steadily away from physical media to download. And that was a huge change, mm -hmm. right? Because the lead-in into physical media was enormous because of all the quality controls that were in place. So now we're just going to throw something up on the FTP server. So it, we had started to kind of make those inroads, being able to actually get to the point where you could continuously update patches um, for the browser or for the, the Netscape services. You guys at the time. were doing it? it? We never got that close oh, to that. Okay. Um, but there were times when it felt like we we were moving almost as fast as that, but without all of the other elements of having a, an implemented DevOps philosophy that would have made it a more high-quality, uh, robust experience, mm -hmm. right? It, we were in panic mode pretty much all the time. But I, I, I do think that there was a lot of, like, lessons learned, sometimes, the, in fact, mostly the hard way, you know, learn, learning those lessons, and then eventually those started to turn into, uh, from an industry perspective, into what became DevOps. I mean, DevOps, the whole idea around DevOps didn't just come out of the air. That's right. You know, there was many, many years of experience uh, across the industry um, that helped guide where it ended up. But from my perspective, it was the natural evolution and to try and codify some of these best practices and, and how to improve the developer velocity and product throughput. It's like, yes, that's absolutely what we want to do. Uh, and, you know, 20 years later from, from when Code Rush was filmed, um, we still haven't really achieved it as an industry. Uh, but it's, was, it's, that, was that a tipping point in your career? Did that do anything for you? It's hard to imagine something being a tipping point when you've basically just started. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense that it gave you, nowadays people look back at that as a documentary on history. I mean, did you get recognition after that? I don't know what happened after that for you. Uh, maybe a little notoriety. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the thing that people tended to remember most after Code Rush is, oh, you're the, you're the chick with the hockey stick. <laughs> uh, or slightly better, or you were the one who had all the alcohol. Um, you know, both, both very well-used tools of my trade, to be fair. Um, I had my own version of the carrot and the stick. It was the tequila or getting mm -hmm. smacked in the head with some form of weaponry. And we had more than the hockey stick. We, we had bats and shenanigans and swords and very violent, very violent team. <laughs> You've used the term best practices. I put it in my notes here several times already. With the speed that the industry is moving right now, is there such a thing as best practices or are they common practices? You know, that's a really good point. Just at lunch today, we I was having a discussion with uh, Jez Humble and James... Jez is here? Jez is here. Okay, yeah. cool. Jez and uh, James Strachan and Koske and a couple of other folks. And, and we recognize that best practice is actually a non... It's, it's, it's a bogus term. There really isn't a best practice. Right. We're in um, I, yeah, yeah. I, and, and I fully admit it, like, yeah, I use it all the time. Habitually... But in retrospect, no, it's a terrible term. A common practice is is uh, one way you could describe it. A best guess was my other description, right? I mean, every every company that ships software, there's an element, there's a strong element of commonality that I don't think we recognize enough. 
there are things, there's, there's the constant reinventions of the wheel um, that I think are unnecessary. And part of what I love about being part of the, the Continuous Delivery Foundation, which is the new group that we've gotten going this year, is to try and address that a little bit more formally. Like there are certain wheels that do not need to be reinvented. But at the same time, there also needs to be the recognition that we are an industry of wild diversity of product and goals and customer types. And so that also needs to be respected. And so I think there's a, I'd love to be able, for us to be able to find that sweet spot of the fundamentals we can agree to and we can support. Um, and then the diversity and the ability to um, customize is also really important. Right, so how do you have a best practice when you're saying that by default there's going to be this variability, right? So it's uh, making it easier to find the thing that fits the best, maybe? I don't know. I, ever since lunch, I, I now have been thinking about how would I describe this now, given an opportunity, but you haven't given me enough time to, no, to come up with a new fine. language. Interesting past in that you worked for uh, Linden Labs. Yes. I didn't even know Second Life was still around. Nobody knows Second Life is still around, except for Second Life uh, users, and they are a loyal bunch. Really? Yes, it is a wildly successful product still. Are they still developing the platform so mm -hmm. it's getting... Yep, uh, small team, but uh, they constantly are making tweaks. Uh, a couple of years ago, they released a new um, architecture for the avatars that allowed for much more customizability. You could have tails. Uh, that were articulatable and wings and, and other things. So it really I mean, kind of changed that. That's a coolness that. factor. It is. Does it really change the functionality of the platform and what they're trying to do? It, I think I would say that it enriched it. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, does it change it? No, but it enriched it. And the people who really enjoy Second Life as a platform, the, the thing that they love more than just about anything is, is that level of enrichment that they mm. have. A lot of unbelievably transformative social experiences happen in Second Life. Um, I know people, many people, uh, who, you know, they've discovered that maybe they were transgender, or maybe that they were gay, or maybe that they... On the platform? On because the, of platform, the platform, you know. They meet a community of people that they normally never would have met. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, and they can be whoever they want to be, literally. If you want to be a, a, right. a balloon-juggling dragon, you can be a balloon-juggling <laughs> dragon, and, have at it. <laughs> I thought that Linden Labs, when the commercial, remember when the big guys came in and started building out properties? Mm -hmm. that, that was people were trying hurtful. to, well, people were trying to in, uh, realize uh, the metaverse, you know, if you That's read right. Snow Crash. Snow Crash many times. Right? And there's a, there's a lot of elements of, of the metaverse that I think Second Life enables. But at the same time, it, it, it really isn't I think we've, we've shown that it really wasn't ready for that type of commercialization that the metaverse has, right? You know, they're taking it a step up to, when you think of Linden Labs, could they become Ready Player One? You know, it's funny that you say that, because if you look at Sansar, which is the next generation platform that, that the lab is working on, it is much more like the Oasis, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to Second Life being similar to the metaverse. So it is kind of interesting to, to see how these uh, precursors in science fiction are resulting in software platforms. So I guess that means that what's the third of the triumvirate would be someone inventing uh, Gibson's vision in Neuromancer, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it all comes down to is Oculus actually going to work the way it was? Because that's what would make these platforms work. Right, and that's hard. I think the biggest challenge in the emerging markets for VR are really the cost of entry. 
you know, on a, you can have a decent gaming platform for, you know, for a desktop less than a thousand bucks, for a laptop for maybe fifteen hundred bucks, as long as you don't need to do VR. As soon as you need to do VR, you've you know doubled, tripled, quadrupled your cost, um, and that's that does not invite a lot of early adoption. And Samsung thinks that they've got the answer in the phone. Yes, yes, uh, and, and being able to do VR through the phone, you know, with Daydream, with Google, and uh, you know some of these other options, or even Oculus had a, a phone interface. I forget what it's called. Um, yeah. Figuring this out through the mobile platform, um, server-side rendering and streaming, like these are all really interesting uh, potential solutions. And we're finally getting to the point technically where it's feasible, or, or at least potentially feasible. And I, I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, the first, I think I was one of the first people to ever have Google Cardboard. Because there's something here to play around with. Google, and then New York Times picked up on it and started doing a series on that. So there is an undercurrent, but it hasn't reached mass market yet. Not quite yet. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. And timing is everything. You know, um, I worked at Pixar Studios for eleven years, but before I started there, I interviewed at a company called There.com. If you remember them, that was a, I think they started around the same time as Linden Lab. Um, but it was another sort of VR platform, and it just the requirements it had for connectivity just weren't support portable in any kind of broad sense. You needed a T1 or better. Um, and uh, they just, people just didn't have access to that type of bandwidth. Uh, and I think it ended up becoming a, um, a, a government contractor. They basically did simulations for war training or some bizarre thing. Um, but I think right now, uh, you know, Linden Lab has played around a little bit with, uh, with mobile offerings, and it just hasn't quite worked yet that the latency is still an issue that you know but now 5G. we're right on, yeah is 5g gonna make that jump right and that's a really interesting question and part of me is like wow that's super cool the other part of me is well five the use of 5g commercially you know is going to be impactful in other areas that are potentially problematic you know i know that the uh the scientists who run the weather satellites and other types of uh critical infrastructure are really worried about commercial incursions into 5G. So I don't know enough to know how risky this is, but uh, I do have to wonder, you know, we're very good as a species for doing things we can do, not that we should do. So it remains to be seen what, what happens there. Hi, after Linden, uh, you went to Google. What you working on? Yes, after Linden went to Google, um, I'm in the Google Cloud Platform space working on developer tools at the moment. It's Google's been a really interesting experience. I've moved around quite a bit. Um, when they hire you at Google at a certain level, they kind of expect you to figure out what to do. Yeah. There's a certain amount of self-initiative that's uh, kind of implied. Yeah, that's been a challenge for me. I usually get hired to solve a problem. Like, come in and we need to get from here to there, or we need to address some form of organizational challenge. And um, There is no one person at Google who could address that, first of all. And so that's that's different. And secondly... It's like, huh, I never realized how hard it is to figure out what to do every day. So I've been doing a lot of different things. I speak with Dave Ranson uh, mm -hmm. from the SRE. Do you work with the SRE team? Very, very uh, lightly. Okay. Um, I, I certainly have conversations with just about any team at Google on in the cloud space right. um, that is part of the development workflow, which of which, of course, operations is a critical part of that. And since you're on the cloud, are you guys uh, dealing with chaos engineering at all, with what Casey is working on? Not as far as I'm aware, but it's Google. I'm sure somebody's doing it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's yeah. doing some everything at Google. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the things that's hard to wrap my head around is 
an Amazon, a Google, and a Microsoft, and I put Apple outside that because it's a different thing in my mind. Yep. That when something gets to be that big of a behemoth, how does it all come together? I mean, how is that one company? Up, uh, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon? No, just Google by just, itself. Uh, oh, I see what you're Google saying. by itself. How is Google a single company? You know, if you ask Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, uh, I mean, the short answer is that it's not right. If you if you think about what Google started out as, um, it was search and ads, right? And it expanded and expanded, and Gmail came along, and and G G Suite, and all these other things. And they got to a point where they're like, okay, we're getting really big. We're gonna we're gonna split up. And I forget when this was. It was in the last ten years. You know, all of a sudden we have the alphabets, right? Mm -hmm. So there's Google. Uh, and then there's all this other stuff, right? YouTube is, a, is an alphabet company. Right, but it's still Google. Everybody it, still calls it Google. Well, yes and no, right? Oh, they are, yeah. they uh, depending on how you look at it, you know, the, the way that I look at it is, are you beholden to certain key bureaucracies um, that are part of the core Google, for example, performance reviews, hiring, that kind of stuff? If the answer is no, then you're not really Google. Should Google be spread apart even more? I don't know the answer to that. Couldn't tell you even if I did, because I'm sure that would violate my employee contract. Yeah, I'm not, but I, but it yeah. is interesting that you, you know, companies that succeed in certain areas are able to grow. Um, one could argue that, you know, as Elizabeth Warren does, you know, that's bad for a certain set of, of socially impactful reasons. You know, others could argue more practically. It's like, well, it's hard to stay focused if you if you have such a broad range of That's products. That's my point. I'm not arguing politics here. Yeah, That's, I didn't think you were. But, yeah. you know, there's different ways you could talk about yeah. this. It's like I'm, I try to wrap my head around daily because I use the platform across the platform. And there is integration between all the different areas because if I work in one, it shows up in the other. Meaning with the analytics that's going on in the AI that's going on in the back end. And the account management. I mean, yeah. really, it's... it's how is the account management done, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there's another good example of how you differentiate. In YouTube, uh, you have your own YouTube account. You can use Google SSO. And in fact, I think that's probably the default. But the account is different, at, at least to a certain degree. What's happening deep under the covers, I'm not sure. Um, but it's, that's true for other things, too. It really comes down to, I think, a company is defined by how they do their account management. Uh, and, and beyond that, their payment model. I, I personally think that DevOps is a limited lifespan, the term DevOps? Yeah, I mean, for, for a while DevOps became a dirty word. Certainly I have an instinctive allergy when people say, oh, I'm hiring DevOps engineers. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> what you're hiring is doom. Um, because it's, you know, as, as I've said many times, DevOps is not a position or a role, it's a way of life, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I've talked to companies who are trying to modernize their their development organizations, like, oh, yeah, we're going to build up a DevOps team and, and start this cover. I said, you're going to spend a lot of money and fail. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're either in or you're not, right? It's a, it's, it is a philosophy. Are you into having uh, distributed uh, authority for decision-making process and implementations and on deliveries? Are you into having uh, uh, localized authority over... Um, implementation details against a higher level target business goal? Are you into blameless postmortems? Are you into investing in automation? Are you into enforcing certain values as a requirement um, around testing, documentation, all the other things that go into having a solid development lifecycle? Because you're not, you're not willing to commit to that 
there's no point in even trying, right? You can't like stick a toe into DevOps and, and think that something good is going to happen, right? That's just not how it works. I was talking to Sasha this But whatever morning. you call it, I don't yeah. think it matters. <laughs> yeah. I, when Sasha and I were talking this morning, because I run All Day DevOps. I'm co-founder of All Day DevOps, which is 30,000 people online, sure. right? yeah. And one of the things that I saw last year was a, a shift in the uh, submissions, where they were going from tools to cultural transformation. Everybody wanted to talk about cultural transformation that you had to do before the tools. Sasha said, you know what, that's a, almost a red herring, not his words, mine, but you have to do both. You have to get the corporate buy-in, the cultural buy-in, but you got to have tools to do that to show them what you're talking about. I, I completely agree with that. Uh, the way that I usually end up describing that is, what are you trying to achieve? Right? That's the first question. Is that your, where you're starting from? That's my starting point is, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to achieve improved developer velocity? Do you think it takes too long for your developers to implement something? Are you trying to improve how fast you can get changes to customers? Like, you have to understand what you're trying to get to, because if you don't know that, then how do you know if you're succeeding? And the answer is you don't. Right. That, that if you don't know where you're trying to get to, you're instantly going to fail because you have no way of, of being guided. Is that endpoint a business objective, or is this something? I think it's a company objective. Okay. Right. There are business elements to it. Mm -hmm. you can say, from a business perspective, our time to market needs to be n weeks, right? And because there's stiff competition, and we have to show how we're able to deliver quality product faster than anybody else. That's a business decision. Out of that comes technical decisions, architectural decisions. How do we create a product such that we can do that, right? The goal doesn't just define, like, you know, what kinds of tests that you write and what type of, of um, process that you should have. It actually informs your architecture, right? If people are getting, and, and they're not yet, right? Containerization, for the people who are really into it, really love it, but a lot of people aren't there yet. It's a, it's, a, it's a mind shift that, particularly in big enterprises, they're like, ah, I don't even know this yet, right? But the point is, it's like, if you don't understand what your goals are, you can't meet them. Um, containerization will succeed at the point that companies understand the value that it will bring to them, in part because they understand what it will take to make that successful. If you have this big legacy Java app sitting on top of Tomcat talking to an Oracle database and you try and shove that into one, maybe two containers and throw it in a cloud, like that's not going to work. Right? But that, some companies try and do that. You know, they, they do, there's the lift and shift versus shift and lift. It's like, we'll lift it up and then we'll shift it. And like, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> containers in the cloud are interesting because at this point in history, Containers don't have a software bill of materials yet. It's not like anybody even knows. They're almost black boxes. That's the discussion I'm headed for. Is oh, okay. Because I've been talking to uh, federal agencies about, they want to know, should we mandate a software bill of materials? My answer is, hell yes. Oh, I absolutely agree. And um, I can feel slightly smug about it because one of the teams, I've got an engineer um, who's doing most of the work um, that I can call my engineer and take a small amount of credit, but we're actually making a system that allows for hermetically built containers. And it's like, that's step one, right? Mm -hmm. Then you need to have a system that allows the customer to take that base image. And these are distro images, right? So there's not much on them, but they're hermetic. 
Um, and so then the step two is no, no, sorry, define a hermetic co complete bill of materials, reproducible, you know everything that's gone into it. Okay. Step two is to have a system that allows you to take that base hermetic base image and modify it hermetically. Right? So you're persisting that bill of materials each time you make a modification. So if you treat it as an artifact that must be known, you know, that means that you have to have some form of metadata that has information, you have to have a caching model, um, particularly for in so many of, of the, once you start loading language platforms onto it, so many of these things as part of the setup, you do a pip install or an npm or an apt-get update or some other damn thing that is not reproducible in the normal sense. So, uh, you know, I liken it to uh, RPM, one of the things I like about RPM is one of the artifacts of an RPM build is an SRPM, the source RPM, where you actually have this ginormous binary file, comparatively speaking, that you can download to see what made that RPM. Now, that's kind of an inefficient way of doing it these days. Um, I'm hoping we can improve on that, but I, th I think it can be done. It just requires effort and commitment. And hopefully we get to the point where it just becomes habitual. Like everybody's like, oh, of course a container image is going to be hermetic. That's, that's like default. Why wouldn't you do that? And right now we're not there yet as an industry, but we'll get there. What are you going to be working on for the next three years? I mean, if you had your druthers. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, coming to Google was a, it's not something I ever planned on doing. Um, I like small companies. I like being able to have uh, impact that's more measurable. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, Melody McFessel, who was, uh, unfortunately, she's no longer at Google, but she was um, until recently uh, VP of the DevOps Engineering Group. And she sold me on this idea. I was like, look, you're going to come to Google. There's going to be a lot of things about Google that are going to drive you nuts. Right? And I know that. They drive me nuts. They, you know, Google, any big company, there's going to be things that do that. But the resources that Google can bring you to push forward an agenda are enormous. My agenda is how do we as an industry come to a place where we know how to identify these are the things that as an industry is in our best interest to share particularly around development platforms, like container orchestration. I'm going to talk a little bit about this in the keynote today. Like Kubernetes becoming the default orchestrator, and then us as an industry making sure that Kubernetes runs absolutely anywhere possible. The Kubernetes is the, is, the good, is the part where it's like, that's the thing that we keep the same. What we do on top of Kubernetes can start to vary, and that's okay. And then the, in the interesting ecosystems on top of that, those can vary. But the fact that it's Kubernetes, the fact that it's on Linux, right? we can keep that a commonality and that allows us to do better innovation. And then even beyond that, how do we focus on the things that tech was always originally meant to do, at least from the, from the beginnings of the internet era? You know, when I was at Netscape, we talked about this is going to change the world. We're going to bring information to the masses easily. Like you just go to a web page. Grandma can click on the link. I, right? I remember opening had, my first browser. There. Right, yeah. and then so and you know and, and Jamie Zawinski, who's uh, <laughs> who got the heck out of tech, it's like I can't do it anymore. But you know he very, uh, very correctly said, "God, I hope this doesn't turn into TV." And in some ways, it's worse than TV. But the original idea of the internet is still there. The original idea of technology is still there, which is how does how do we use technology to bring information and opportunity to the world. And that's what I want to see. And that's what I'm taking advantage of being at Google and having all those resources to help with. That's one of the reasons I joined the CDF. Um, I'm on the board of directors uh, for Women Who Code. It's like these are opportunities that I would not have had at previous companies, and I'm very grateful for When you give your keynote today, what do you hope people walk away from? What can you impart in 50 minutes to 2,000 people? I hope to impart the idea that 
tech as it moves forward is not by its nature necessarily competitive, that it can be collaborative. Competition is good. Competition is partly what pays us, but it's more than that, and that we have the ability to make it more than that. And the open source communities are increasingly those things that that help keep the industry honest, and thank God for them. This is the DevSecOps Podcast. The DevSecOps Podcast is supported by OWASP, organizers of Melbourne's OWASP AppSec Day 2019, Australia's biggest software security conference. And by All Day DevOps, the world's largest DevOps conference with over 30,000 attendees, live online, November 6th.